How's everybody doing? That's sad. How's everybody doing? You should know this by now. I like energy. Um, well, I'm super excited to be with you on our third week of our five-week series of Big Questions, Honest Answers. And so we laugh at that video because it's true. Okay, we laugh at that video because we can actually identify with those people, can't we? Um, there, there's never going to be a time in our life where we do not mess up at something. And so it's really important, um, this, this question that we'll be discussing this weekend, which is, um, when I mess things up, what should I do? When I mess things up, what should I do? You'll never reach a point in your life where you stop asking this question. And most of us, as we're going to see in the next few minutes, we answer this question wrong. Uh, most of us, after we mess up, what do we do? We go into cleanup mode, don't we? Uh, we try to hide. We try to save face. We try to hide the fact that we messed up. Uh, try to stop anyone from knowing that we've failed, that we've, that we've done something wrong. And if we can't do that, uh, we start making up some pretty convincing reasons why we couldn't help it or how it was really someone else's responsibility. And we do everything we can to kind of minimize our responsibility. And then once we get everyone to respect us again or to trust, trust us again, we're good for a little while until we mess up again, and we have to go through that whole process once again. But this weekend, through the life of David, uh, we're going to learn how to properly handle our mess-ups and our failures. Um, and, and it's incredibly important, as we'll soon see, that we learn to do this correctly. So um, the past uh, few weeks, we've been in some pretty happy psalms. The first week we asked, how do we find success? And the last weekend we asked, um, what's the secret to satisfaction? How do I find satisfaction in life? And uh, we've been in some pretty happy psalms, psalms that um, kind of let us down the road of success or psalms that, uh, that um, lead us towards satisfaction in life. But if you've been reading your psalms every day, you'll notice that not all the psalms are all that happy. And that's why I love the Psalms, because they're written by a real person named David who doesn't just dwell on this spiritual mountaintop with the Holy Spirit around him all the time, um, but he's in spiritual valleys sometimes, and, and he suffers, and, and he, he, um, his words kind of reveal that in his heart. And so um, this week, uh, we're going to be in some of those sad Psalms. And so the tone of my message, the mood of my message, kind of has to match the mood and the tone of these psalms. And so um, we gave you a funny video so we can get our laughs in, because uh, we're not going to be laughing that much in this message. And so I apologize. If it's your first time here uh, at Hope, we'd love to have a good time. We'd love to cut up. We'd love to talk about really good, encouraging topics. But we're also a church. And so we want to address real life issues. Uh, we want to address real concerns. And sometimes um, that means that we have to talk about some hard things. And so uh, my prayer uh, this weekend is through the next few minutes as we go to God's word and as we go to the life of David, that we'll honestly be able to look at our life, especially in those times where we mess up and we fail. And from this point forward, we'll be able to make some good and life-giving choices in the future, okay? Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 39. Psalm 39, we're going to be in verses 7 through um, 13. And uh, just notice the juxtaposition between this psalm and last week's psalm, okay? The same guy wrote it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I, have over I am overcome by the blow of your hand. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. So hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. For I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger as all my fathers were. Look away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart 
and then no more. Now, isn't this drastically different than the Psalms we were in the past two weeks? They are. I mean, last week David was crying out, Oh God, you bring me joy and eternal satisfaction at your right hand. I love to dwell in your presence. My heart says of you, O oh Lord, seek his face. Your face I will seek. And this week he's saying, God, look away from me. Hide your face from me. Your hand is heavy on me. You've disciplined me, and my heart is heavy. And the reason the words are so different is that David prayed this after he messed up really, really bad, after he failed in a profound way. You see, David wasn't this perfect guy. Um, yes, he was uh, the little shepherd boy who bravely fought Goliath. And yes, he's the one called a man after God's own heart. And yes, he is probably the best king that Israel had ever had. But at one moment in his life, he makes a horrible mistake. Um, he sins in a really, really bad way. And the consequences of this mess up, of this failure, actually last for decades afterwards. And, and this is the story of David and Bathsheba. A lot of you know it. And if you don't know the story of Bathsheba, it's found in uh, 2 Samuel 11. And so let me just give you the gist of this story. Um, in 2 Samuel 11, the, the camera kind of zooms in on David. And it's springtime. Uh, and it's the time where uh, the king's armies are away on the battlefield, and David's the king of Israel. And so one of his primary responsibilities is to lead his uh, army into battle, but he stays at home for some reason. It's probably the first time David's ever stayed at home when all of his uh, army was at war. So he's getting bored. You know, we can't really blame him. I mean, you, you want to get, uh, would you rather be hand-fed grapes and like take showers all day and, and play the lute and stuff in a castle or you go to like hand-to-hand -hand combat and stay in a stinky tent with men for like six months. So he chooses to stay home, uh, but he's bored one night. And so he goes up onto his roof to do a little bit of stargazing, I guess. And uh, something besides stars catches David's eye. Um, and it's this uh, lady named Bathsheba. And she's an attractive woman and she's bathing on the rooftop. And she's not crazy. This was actually a common occurrence back then. Um, but David um, looks at her and sees that she's beautiful and attractive and just starts staring. Um, now, in hindsight, what David should have done was to close his eyes and go back to his room and take a cold shower and get in bed and sleep it off and then wake up and start another day. That's not what he does. Um, he begins to lust after Bathsheba, and he's so intrigued by her that he sends some of his temple servants, uh, his uh, castle servants, to go and uh, figure out who she is. So he kind of calls the servants up, and um, they're like, who's that lady? And they're like, oh, oh, wow, that's Bathsheba. Um, that is uh, a woman that lives in Israel, and she has no clothes on, um, and you shouldn't be looking at her because her husband's name is Uriah, and he's a great guy. He's actually fighting the battle that you should be out right now on the battlefield. He's doing that for you. So she's a married uh, woman. You can't possibly have any relationship with her. Um, but David's heart is set on Bathsheba. And so he sends his servants to go get Bathsheba and to bring her back to the castle. So after um, her bath is done, uh, her hair is dried, she put her makeup on, she's called to the castle. And she's probably freaking out, thinking, did my husband die? What does the king want with me at this late hour? Um, but the servants take Bathsheba into David's room. And behind closed doors, David and Bathsheba do what people do behind closed doors. And then in the morning, she goes home. And that's David's sin. There's lust, there's adultery, um, there's inappropriate relations with women. Um, but, but when she leaves that next morning, everything's fine. No one knows about it. It's not that big a deal. David, sure, he made a mistake, but he can kind of uh, move on. And it seems like everything is going to be fine for weeks. Uh, he's messed up, but it's not that big a deal. But um, then, as things like these always do, uh, things get much more complicated. And so a few weeks pass, and he gets this letter from Bathsheba. And Bathsheba says, David... I'm pregnant. 
And uh, my husband, as you know, is away at battle where you should be. So I'm pretty sure that you are the father. And so David, David has a choice. He can say something. He can confess his sin. But then the whole world's going to know that he's a sinner, that he's an adulterer. Or he, he can say nothing. But Bathsheba would be labeled an adulteress and could be stoned to death along with the baby, the king's baby that's in her womb. And so uh, David hatches this plan. And so um, everyone say Joab. Okay, there's lots of names. You've got you to gotta remember these. So Joab. Joab is David's good friend. He's the commander of the, uh, the army out there on the battlefield. And so David sends word to Joab and says, Joab, um, can you get Uriah, which is um, Bathsheba's husband, can you bring him back to Israel? I want to talk to him for a little bit. And so he, that's what he does. And uh, Uriah is like, what's going on here? Did my wife die? I have no idea what's going on. So David meets Uriah um, in, in the castle courts and says, hey, Uriah, you deserve this long vacation. You've been an excellent fighter. You're one of my main mans. You've been brave in the face of danger. And so you just deserve a few days vacation. So if you'll just go back to your house, you'll find your wife's there in a nice dress. And there's some wine and a candlelit dinner and stuff. And you just do what you want to do. And then we'll get you back on the battlefield. So his hope was that Uriah and uh, Bathsheba would do married stuff. And that when he left and got back on the battlefield, everyone would think the baby was Uriah's. Uh, but there's a snag in David's plan. Uriah is an honest man, unlike David. He's much more of a man than David. And so Uriah will not sleep with his wife. In fact, Uriah won't even sleep in his house. He sleeps on the front porch. And so David goes up to Uriah and says, what are you doing, man? Uriah says, all my friends are on the battlefield. They're fighting this battle for you. Who am I to take a vacation and to hold my wife in my arms and spend a night in a bed? I want to get back out on the battlefield. And so David says, man, this is getting really complicated. So he goes to plan B. He sends Uriah back on the battlefield, and he, he, he wires Joab, remember, his best friend, and says, Joab, uh, Uriah, he's got his vacation, but since he's such a good fighter, why don't you put him on the front lines tomorrow? So put him right where the danger is. And so his hope was that, Joab, was that um, Uriah would be killed. And that's actually what happens. Joab does that, and he sends Uriah to the front lines of battle, and he's killed. Um, and so it's a sad affair. I mean, Uriah dies, Bathsheba gets the news, and she mourns. And when the morning's over, David takes her as his wife, okay? So, so his sin was a little bit more tricky to hide um, than he first expected, but everything was going good now. In fact, in the next few months, um, David just goes about his normal business. He acts like nothing is wrong. Bathsheba's his wife now. It's okay for him and her to have a baby. On the surface, everything's fine. No one knows. He's saved face. This mess-up won't ever haunt him again. And that's the biggest mistake that David made is that he kept this sin in the dark. He refuses to bring this sin to the light. He keeps it hidden, and he goes about his normal business. See, the chink in his armor, the, the detail that David forgets is that God knows. God knows what David has done. And because God loves David so much, he won't allow that sin to stay in the darkness. He knows the destructive nature of hidden sin and so God gets this guy named Nathan. So everyone's saying Nathan. Nathan. Nathan's a prophet. And so God goes to Nathan and says, Nathan, you got a hard job. you got to call out the king of Israel. And you got to make him look like a fool in front of everybody. But here's how you're going to do it. And so Nathan the prophet goes before the king David. And um, King David, part of his job was to hear trials, uh, to settle cases and disputes. And so he's like the chief justice as well as the, the king. And so Nathan comes before him and says, King David, I got a, I got a case for you. You're gonna, not going to believe this when you hear it. And Nathan tells him this crazy story. 
He says, in a city not far away, there's a really, really rich dude. I mean, stinking, filthy rich. He's got a thousand cattle and a thousand sheep on a thousand hills. And, and then there's this poor guy, um, and he only has one little ewe lamb that he bought when it was just a baby. And their families brought it up, and he feeds it the scraps off his table. And, and it sleeps in the house with them, and the whole family loves it. And this guy actually feels like this lamb is a daughter to him. Well, a few nights ago, this traveler comes and wants to stay at the rich guy's house. And so the rich guy wants to treat him to a feast. And so instead of taking one of his thousand sheep or thousand cattle, he goes into the poor man's yard and steals that little ewe lamb. And he takes that man's only sheep and he kills it and he eats it. And at this point, David, it's white hot. He gets so angry. He says, who is this man? This man deserves to die. He must be put to death. He can't get away with this. So tell me who this person is, Nathan. And Nathan kind of gulps. And he looks at the king and says, it's you. You're that man. You had this whole kingdom at your disposal. And yet you, you wanted to have this one poor man's only wife. And then you had her and you took her and then you killed him because you got her pregnant. You're that man. And at that moment, David realizes that he's caught that he can't save face, that he can't hide the sin any longer. And finally, finally, his sin's brought into the light. And he confesses his sin. He confesses it in Psalms 51, which we'll read a little bit later, but he confesses it to God, and he confesses it to everyone around him. And it's like this big burden, this weight's been lifted off his shoulders. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God forgave him. <laughs> no questions asked, 100% out of grace and mercy, God forgave him of his sin. There's nothing standing in the way of the relationship between David and God, but God did not remove the consequences of that sin. Okay? And Nathan goes on to explain what those consequences are. He says that the baby that Bathsheba is pregnant with, he's going to be born, but he's only going to last a week, and then he's going to die. And not only that, but for generations to come, for years and years to come, there's going to be war and rebellion and treason in your house. In fact, years later, someone from your own family is going to rebel against you and try to take over your kingdom. And so Nathan's rebuke reveals these two key truths that we really need to learn, that we really need to have in our hearts when we mess up. And the first one is that our sin, it's mainly against God and not others. When we sin, we are mainly offending God, even though it may hurt and offend others as well. And, and Christianity is unique in this. That's why Christianity says um, that sometimes what you do, it doesn't hurt anybody else. It doesn't hurt any other soul in the whole world, but it can still be called wrong. It can still be called sin because God forbid it. So our sin is mainly against God. And secondly, God will forgive sin always, but he won't always remove the consequences of sin. And so the consequences of David's sin begin to roll in. The first one is that his son um, that was born to Bathsheba, he is born, and, and David puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he fasts, and he cries out to God for seven days, don't take this child from me, don't let him die, I know I deserve this, but please take this consequence away from me. And sure enough, seven days later, the son dies. But David takes this like a man. I mean, he mourns, um, he realizes that, that this is the consequences of his sin, and he accepts it, and he kind of moves on. And he moves on for a while. I mean, years pass by, and he thinks this whole Bathsheba thing's in the background. It's all done with, that, that it just was a momentary sting, but there's no more consequences. But as you, be, as you continue to read the story, you see the consequences pile up 
and pile up and pile up. And in a few years, his life starts falling apart. So I'm going to tell you this story. There's lots of names. Can you hang on? Okay, pay attention. All right, so David has an older son, and his name is Amnon. Everyone say Amnon. Okay, so Amnon's his eldest, and he's in line. He's heir to the throne. He's going to be king after David, and he is a chip off the old block. He's just like David. When he sees something that he wants, he's going to take it. It doesn't matter what's standing in his way. He's going to get what he wants no matter what. And so uh, along the way, Amnon falls in love with this attractive woman. Um, And he just thinks this woman is so beautiful and falls in love with her and has to have her at all costs. Uh, But the problem is, is that this woman's name is Tamar. So someone say Tamar. Okay. Say Amnon. Say Tamar. Hey, Tamar is Amnon's half-sister, stepsister. I know. Um, Same dad, different moms. Now, as crazy as stuff was back then, you still couldn't marry or have relations with your full sister or your half-sister, okay? Um, Just because Israel didn't know about genetics, God did. And so it was against the law for you to marry your sister or your half-sister. And even though this is wrong, Amnon's heart is set on Tamar. Even though he knows that it's against the rules, he pursues her. And so um, what he does is he sends his um, his, uh, castle uh, servants to go out and fetch Tamar, and he acts like he's really sick. He acts like he has a fever, and so he gets in his bed, and he brings Tamar into his room and says, Tamar, I'm so sick. I don't have any strength. I haven't eaten in, in so many days, and you make the best biscuits I've ever had. So if you can just please make some biscuits right here before me, and then I'll eat them, and you can be on your way. And so Tamar says, okay, I can do that. So she makes some biscuits, and as she brings the biscuits to the bed, um, Amnon attacks um, and pulls her into bed, and he rapes her. Um, and after that, it said that Amnon's love for Tamar immediately turns to hatred. He can't stand the sight of her. He says, get out of here, Tamar. Leave my presence. And Tamar says, no, you can't do this. My whole future is ruined now. No longer am I a virgin. Um, I've been taken advantage of. No one's going to want to marry me now. So at least ask your father, David, our father, if we can get married. I don't have anywhere to go. Uh, But he's so angry and so disgusted with Tamar that his servants chase her out of the castle. They bolt the door behind her. And now Tamar doesn't have anywhere to go. And she's felt something eerily similar to Bathsheba, hasn't she? Some servants from the castle come and get her and bring her into the royal courts. And then a royal man abuses her and then kicks her out. But unlike Bathsheba, she doesn't have a husband or a home to go to. And so she runs into the arms of her older brother, Absalom. So everyone say Absalom. Okay? So you have Amnon, Tamar, Absalom. Okay? Don't name your kids these names. If you're named this, I'm sorry. Um, just not a good idea. So Absalom hears the story about Tamar, and he gets furious. Because this is his little sister, Tamar. He loves her, and now he can't stand Amnon. So he runs to David and tells David this story. And David hears this story, and he gets furious, the Bible says. The Bible says he cries and he mourns, but he doesn't do a thing about it. He refuses to address that sin. He refuses to, to allow that sin to see the light of day. Because of what David did in the past, I mean, he didn't really have a leg to stand on. Was he going to go to Amnon and say, hey, Amnon, this is, it's, it's a really bad idea to send your servants to go get a woman off the street and bring her in your bedroom and have your way with her and kick her out. You just can't do that. It's like, that's exactly what you did, Dad, with Bathsheba. And she was married, okay? At least Tamar wasn't married. So he doesn't address the sin, and Absalom sees this. He sees that his dad refuses to address the rapist of his little sister, and he's just filled with anger. And so two whole years pass, and David doesn't say a word, and Absalom lets that anger grow and grow and grow. 
And so two years later, he hatches this plan. Um, two years later, it's time to shear some sheep, time to fleece the lambs. And so it's a big deal in the country. And so he goes to his dad and says, it's been two years since that horrible thing with Tamar happened. So let's have it like a men's weekend. So let me get all the brothers. We'll go down to a big sheep shearing festival and we'll just throw a party. So that's what they do. All the brothers go to this big sheep shearing party. That sounds weird. Um, ask somebody that lives in Fuquay. Okay, they'll explain it to you. Some of them are there this weekend. I'm just kidding. Um, and so they go. And then Amnon, being Amnon, he gets drunk as a skunk. He drinks so much wine, just gets plastered. And all of his brothers are kind of tipsy too. And so at this point, Absalom makes his move. And he hires this hit team. He asks his servants, say, hey, go kill Amnon. It's been two years since you raped my sister. Kill him. Like, we're not going to kill him. He's next in line to be king. And Absalom's like, kill him. And so his hit crew, they actually go and they kill Amnon. So Amnon's dead now. And so all the brothers realize somebody's killing the king's son, so they start running back to the castle. And one by one they come in. You'll never believe it. Amnon's dead. Amnon's dead. And slowly they file in one by one, and the only one that's not there is Absalom, and David knows. And so David, the Bible says, he's furious with Absalom. It says that David weeps, that he mourns. That now he's lost a child, a newborn. His daughter has been raped, and now the heir to the throne, his, his firstborn son, is dead. And he knows that Absalom is responsible for that. So he's crying, but he doesn't say a word. He never addresses the sin with Absalom. What's he going to say? It's really bad to send some servants to kill a man? Absalom's going to say, you did that with Uriah. I killed a rapist. You killed an innocent man that was loyal to your kingdom. And so David refuses to bring this sin out into the open to address this issue. And so Absalom stays in the countryside for three whole years. Three whole years, he never talks to David, and David never talks to him. And the hatred inside Absalom's heart for his father just grows and grows. And finally, uh, through Joab talking to David, David allows Absalom to come back into the city. He says, I let my son back in the city, but he can't talk to me. I better not see his face. So two whole years pass, five years now. Two whole years in the city pass, and Absalom never sees David. But so, slowly, Absalom starts asking, I want to see my father. i got to talk to David. I want to see the king. Grant me a place with the king. And time and time again, he's denied. And so one night, to get the king's attention, he goes out to Joab's place, and Absalom lights Joab's fields on fire. And so Joab comes screaming out of his house, my field's on fire. Who did this? And Absalom's like, I did. I did this. I'll burn it all down. Let me see my father. And so there's this poignant scene in 2 Samuel where five years of alienation, five years of not seeing one another, David finally sees Absalom and he hugs him. And they cry and they weep and they hug. And David um, removes the guilt of Absalom and they're reunited. But it's been five years and the damage is done now. Okay? The sin was allowed to stay in the dark for too long. And now it's too deeply rooted and Absalom absolutely hates his dad. He says, you wouldn't take up for my little sister when she was raped, and I had to do that for you. And you won't address sin time and time again, and you're a murderer, and you're an adulterer, and you took advantage of Bathsheba. You have no business running Israel. And so slowly, Absalom plots a revolt against King David. And he does this in a really smart way. Um, Absalom's a really handsome guy. He's got really uh, curly, long red hair, like down to here. Um, which is striking in that day, I guess. The Bible actually mentions how much it weighs when he cuts it. So apparently his hair was a big deal. And so he would stand at the city gates. Now remember, David was the chief justice, so he would hear all these cases every day. Well, Absalom would stand at the city gates, and 
all these people would come from the tribes, and, they, and he'd hug them and greet them with a kiss and say, what are, you, what are you here for? And they'd say, well, I was just really wronged a few days back, and someone took advantage of me. I want to present my case to the king, and I think I have a good shot at winning. And Absalom would kind of throw his hair back like that. And uh, he'd say, you know what? I think you've got a great case. I think you could win this case. In fact, I think you deserve more money than you're actually requesting. But here's the deal. My father, he's dumb. He doesn't see cases anymore. He's no help to you. That's a shame because if I was king, I would hear your case and I would grant you this. So I'm sorry, but you can go on home now. And he does this day after day until he, he really kisses up to half Israel. And he slowly gets this army together um, over the years. And then a few years later, he goes up to his dad and lies to him and says, um, I'm going to go worship the Lord on, on Mount Hebron. And David's like, okay, he found religion. This is cool. All right, Absalom met God. You can go worship. And so he, he goes out to Mount Hebron, and when he gets there, the trumpets blast, and half of Israel fall down on their knees, and they yell out, Absalom is king at Hebron. And so Absalom's plotting to overthrow David's whole government. And so there's this really, really serious and poignant scene. It's in 2 Samuel 15. And when this news reaches David, David's 60 years old at this point. And back in those days, no one made it to 60 years old. And that's a, he's an old guy. And so he can't do hand-to-hand -hand combat. He can't fight. And so he's forced to flee the castle. And so there's this scene of him with a few family members. And they're walking out of the castle and down the road. And the Israelites that have remained uh, faithful to him and, and love him, they're, they're just crying. And they're weeping. They don't know what's going to happen with Absalom. They don't know what kind of ruler he's going to be. And the Bible says that David crosses this brook, brook of Kidron. And he marches out this mountain, this, the Mount of Olives. And he's a weeping king. He just hits the dirt, his knees hit the ground, and he just begins to weep and to wail. And this is a time to weep, isn't it? And you would too, as a father, you would weep. I mean, your son is a rebel against your throne. And make no mistake about this, if Absalom wants to get the throne, the king has to die. And so he's weeping as a father, but he's also um, weeping um, over his people these people that he can no longer lead or protect. And more than anything else, David is weeping because David understands what's going on in this moment. This is the far-reaching consequences of sin. This is what Nathan predicted. This moment is a direct result of David's sin. The consequences affect not just David and not just Absalom, but his extended family and the whole entire kingdom. And alongside of David, right at this moment, is a 10-year-old son named Solomon. It's where the Messiah is going to come through. So what happens now? If David dies and Solomon dies, things get hopeless. And God records this story for us as this, as this reminder, this warning. And we need this warning. See, the truth is, is that we live in a moral universe and are governed by moral laws. And this universe is ruled by a moral God. And he has made his rules and his regulations crystal clear. He's made them 100% clear. See, everything is not an option. Everything is not permissible in our lives. Galatians 6, 7 says this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And in Galatians 6, 8, it says, if you sow according to the sinful nature, from that nature, you're going to reap destruction. 
And if you sow according to the Holy Spirit, from that Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Every day, you and I, we're reaping things that we planted years ago. And every day, we are planting things that we will reap a harvest for decades later. So God just cries out to us, you can't minimize sin. And that's so easy to do in our culture, isn't it? And you watch TV for long enough, and you'll start to laugh at the very things that break God's heart. You'll start to crack up about things that, that, that sent Jesus to the cross. And God wants to say to all of us, including me, sin has unmistakable consequences, not just for you, but for your family. So don't minimize it. I mean, don't think for a second that you can be cold and distant from your wife or you can be demeaning or controlling with your husband and not think that that will affect your marriage. It will. It just will. And this is not, this is not we sin and God just strikes us with a lightning bolt. Not at all. But if you spend years of your life looking and being addicted to pornography, that's going to take a toll on your marriage. That's a consequence of sin. So don't think that, that you can be short and yell at your children and, and think that that won't damage them. It will. It will. See, sin is dangerous. It's much more dangerous than we think. We think we're, we got it under control, right? We think that it's tame. We think that, that we've covered it up enough, that we can stop any time that we want, that there's no sense in bringing our sin to the light and dealing with it. And if that's us, if that's you tonight, and we're in for a rude awakening because every hour, every minute that sin stays in the dark, it grows and it grows and it grows. And one day, you're going to reap a harvest from that. Paul Tripp says, every day of your life, you're saying yes to things and you're saying no to things. And all of your yeses will have a harvest and all of your noes will have a harvest. And at this moment, David would have given anything to go back to that spring afternoon on the roof to say no to lust, to close his eyes to Bathsheba, but he didn't. He said yes, and decades later, he's experiencing the consequences of this sin. And some of you are asking yourself, Chase, I thought you said God had forgiven his sin. I thought you said God forgave him. Why is this bad stuff still happening? And the Bible truth is that God absolutely forgave David. He loves David. David has fellowship with the Father, but God has not removed the consequences of those sins. These are not punishments. These are natural consequences because we live in a moral universe. And in our minds, that's a hard thought to deal with, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, God is both just and loving. At the same moment in God's heart exists these demands for justice and these longings for love. And that's confusing to us. Is he angry or forgiving? Does he love us or does he hate us? Which is it? And there should be a tension inside of your heart. Why should I obey a God who still disciplines me? Or, or when he forgives me, why doesn't he remove the consequences? Aren't his demands for justice and his longings of love, aren't those at odds? Aren't those opposites? And some of you, if you're really honest, you're, you're questioning, can I even trust this God? Why would I want to worship this type of God who won't remove the consequences? And that, that tension was in the heart of David, too. And in a few moments, David really feels that tension. You see, David gets up off the ground in the Mount of Olives. He's done weeping. 
And he knows his kingdom's in peril, and so he commands his army, okay, go and beat back Absalom's army. Go and beat him back and win battles, but deal gently with my son Absalom. You see, there's the demands for justice. There's a rebel against my kingdom, and he has to be brought to justice, but he's my son, so deal gently with him. Well, the battle ends pretty quickly, and it's a weird story. Uh, Absalom, he has long red hair, right? And so he's riding in the woods on a donkey, and his hair gets caught in a tree. It's karma. And um, the donkey keeps on going. So he's hanging in a tree by his red hair. Weird. Uh, but one of Joab's army men, he sees that. He says, well, that's a quick battle. There's Absalom. Battle's won. And so he goes back to Joab and says, you'll never believe this. Our, uh, the enemy, he's hanging in a tree. And Joab says, well, have you killed him? He said, no. David told us not to kill him. It's his son. But Joab, he's, he's the military leader. He sees him black and white. I mean, he's a politician. He knows what has to be done. So he takes a few spears, and he pins Absalom to a tree, and ten men just kill him. And so when news of this reaches David, um, he has a few different accounts at first, and, and he learns the battle's won. Okay, he, he can go back to his, his castle safely. He asks, what, what happened to Absalom? Is he still alive? What happened? Can you bring him to me? And Joab says, no, I, I killed him. And David just hits the ground. And he starts crying again and weeping again. And Joab actually gets frustrated. And he rebukes David and says, what are you doing? He was a rebel. Either you died or he died. I did what was best for the kingdom. The rebel had to be killed. Stop crying and go lead your people. And David, David accepts this. He doesn't even rebuke Joab. And he gets up. But he says this poignant word. He says, oh, Absalom, would that I have died instead of you. And he feels this tension of justice and love. And it points us towards this tension in God's heart. I mean, you're his creation. He loves you because of that. You're in his image. Whether you love him or not, he really, really loves you. But the truth is, we're all rebels. We're all rebels to his kingdom, and we deserve to die. And so in the heart of God exists this love for rebels that out of his justice and righteousness, they must die. There's this tension and this tension doesn't get resolved. See, that's, that's the end of David's story. Isn't that a horrible ending? That's a horrible ending. As, as a reader, you're left completely unsatisfied. The tension's still there. It hasn't been dissipated at all. A universe without justice would be a horrible place, but so would a universe without love. But a thousand years later, God resolved this tension. A thousand years later, a descendant of David, another king, would walk across the brook of Kedron and up the Mount of Olives. And he was a king as well, and just like David, he was a weeping king. But unlike David, he was not weeping because of his own sin, because he didn't have any. His name was Jesus. He was weeping at the sins, my sins and your sins, and the sins of his rebellious children. And he felt that tension too, the demands of justice, the longings of love. And unlike David who cried out, would that I had died instead of you, my rebellious son, Jesus took our place. And on the cross, the demands of justice were satisfied forever. <laughs> satisfied forever. And now the longings of love can be fulfilled at last. The power of sin is broken once for all. And so we go back to our question, uh, well, these consequences that God allowed in his lives, how can we say that? 
That sounds so judgmental and harsh of God that when we sin, he just punishes it. That's not it at all. You know, anytime you doubt God's character or you doubt his, his trustworthiness, look squarely at the cross of Jesus Christ. He loves you so much he was willing to send his only son to die for you. And so the consequences of sin, they're a grace and a mercy of God. They're not a denial of that love or a contradiction. The truth is, is we see sin as so very attractive, don't we? We see it as so attractive, as tame, as lovable, as weak, that we can control our sin, that we're on top of it, that we can hide it. But God in his grace and in his mercy... He shatters that mirage. He shatters that dream and he shatters this lie by giving us a bitter foretaste of what those sins will bring about in your life. This is not God's wrath. This is not his anger. It's a mercy and a grace. If you do this, you're going to get hurt. And he wants something so much better for us. And he knows that it's better to have us in his kingdom in heaven and not at all, even if we have to arrive there with a few scars, with a few wounds. And so that's why he allows the consequences. See, Jesus made it possible to confess our sin in the presence of a holy God, to bring the dark things into light, and then to not only find forgiveness, but to find deliverance and power, the power to refuse sin in the future. So here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. If you look in your bulletin, don't look now. You can look later. But there's, there's a handout. It says care resources. Now, there's relief. There's restoration. There's renewal. And there's tons and tons of classes that you may need to sign up for because you may be feeling the weight, the consequences of sin. And maybe not even your consequences, but your ex-husband's consequences of his sin or somebody else's consequences. So we offer these classes, finding real joy, divorce care, grief share, total forgiveness, restored, celebrate recovery. And we have care ministers waiting even um, after the service to come and talk with you and pray with you. But here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a gift, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to uh, make you rush out of here to catch the shuttle or to go, to, you know, go get your kids off of Kid City or to rush to the parking lot. What I want to do is just to give you a, a little bit of time with God. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself this question. What are you keeping in the darkness? What are you keeping in the darkness? How are you minimizing sin? And what do you need to confess to God and bring into the light with others? And David's going to lead us here. This is the psalm that he prayed right after his sin was called out by Nathan. It's Psalm 51. Listen to what he writes. Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. In verses 10 through 12, so now create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So what's going to happen is we're going to have some worship guys come out and they're going to they're sing a song. I'm going to pray. They're going to sing a song and they're going to ask you to sing along one time and then there's just going to be some time. Some time for you to talk to God. And when it's time for you to go, you'll be dismissed, but... Just take advantage of this opportunity. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. And God, I pray that all the people out there did not hear what I did not say. I'm not saying you mess up, God's gonna get you. I'm not saying you mess up and God's gonna send a lightning bolt. That's not how you operate, God. When we mess up, you're right there to, to, to take us back, to hold us, to draw us near. Fellowship's never broken because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, but there are some natural consequences that we're gonna experience. And so, God, I pray that you would be with us in the midst of those consequences, that you would allow us to develop a distaste for sin and a healthy fear of sin and a healthy love for you and your presence. I pray that dark things would be brought into the light. I pray that relationships would be restored, and I pray that your spirit would do amazing things. It's in your son's name we pray.